And we are now in First Chronicles. We'll, we'll, we'll start in verse 16. They call Jesus the son of David. He's a direct descendant to this king. He was the man, he wrote all the Psalms. He's described in the Psalms as the man after God's own heart. And uh, he has been made king by this time. He's made, he's been made king of Israel. He spent um, somewhere between 10 or 15 years after being anointed by the prophet Samuel um, as king, running from, he was taller than um, everybody else. He was, had a greater personality than everyone else. Uh, he was stronger than er everyone else, but his heart was not after God. His, his heart, he was not after God's heart. And so the Lord gave, be careful what you pray for. That's an old uh, expression, be careful what you pray for, because God may just give you what you pray for, and it may be, and you'll find out just how miserable it is praying for things that just gratify your flesh. And so um, Saul dies, David comes in after 10 to 15 year preparation period. His preparation to be a servant of God's people was to have someone hunting him down for 10 to 15 years, um, living in the wilderness, living in the rocks and the crannies and the bush, and, and, and Saul dies, he comes back in. By now he's been made king, and he, he's a man after God's own heart. The first thing he does when he becomes king of all Israel, what does he do? Uh, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which is above which was the mercy seat, above which was the very presence of God. He brings it to Jerusalem. He leaves it there. He puts a tent over it, and then he says at the beginning of chapter 17, uh, he says, God, what, what's up with this? I'm living in a palace. You're living in a tent. And what did the Lord tell him? The Lord said to him, did I ever ask for a palace? I've been fine. I was fine with a tent like this for um, 40 years with the Israelites um, wandering around in the wilderness. Uh, and, and so we later see in, in Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament, uh, it, it's silly to think that a temple or, or a tent or anything can, can contain the, the Lord. Heaven, the heavens can't even contain him. Um, and uh, David asked to build him a house and uh, the Lord says, uh, no, but, verse 12 of chapter 17, I'll give you a son and he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. This is a forever kingdom. And then he repeats himself in verse 14, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. That is a reference to Jesus Christ, who is one of the descendants um, of David. That's why D um, Jesus is called the son of David. And in verse 14, and his throne shall be established um, forever. So, uh, David, you can't build the temple, but I will build a temple through your son, and this, um, through this son's seed, um, 
there will, uh, there will be a, a kingdom um, that will last forever. And that's, that's, that's speaking of Jesus Christ. And so after David hears that, this is where we left off in uh, verse 16. After David hears where the Ark of the Covenant is in, in the temple. And he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all whom we have heard with our ears. And so David is told in verse 12, uh, in verse 11, 12, and 14, that God's going to establish a dynasty. The word used there in 12 and uh, 14 is the word house, but that means a dynasty, meaning n- not just one king, but a line of kings. And this kingdom is going to last forever. And so David's like, this isn't, this is just, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed um, with the thought that this is going to be happening. And so he goes into the Lord and just starts to worship him. Again, verse 16, who am I? And, and what is my house that you have brought me this for? I do think it's incredibly important for you to realize. You know, what I pray on a regular basis and what we pray at noon prayer, what we pray at the Sunday morning service, just on a regular basis, um, is that you, sitting in this room, and everyone within this, in, in my hearing now, and, and re- really everyone at Calvary Chapel in the city, would understand, would have this, the same kind of worship would be triggered in your heart when you understand that you too now are in the bloodline, in a sense, of Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, it says that um, you, because of the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are now holy and without blame before God in love, having been predestined to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So um, I, I tell you, one of the most wonderful things to see is when, when, you, when, when you run into someone who gets that. They're bananas for Jesus when they realized, I'm in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And me, with my record of sin, with my history with sin, with my history um, not honoring God, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of Jesus Christ. I'm an adopted son, rather, I'm an, I, I've been adopted, I, I'm, actually, I'm an adopted son of the Father, a co-heir with Jesus Christ, meaning I get an inheritance with him. And, and, and so, yours, uh, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you have faith in him, Ephesians chapter 1 says God puts his Holy Spirit in you, 
your heart your, and your salvation is sealed. Your future is sealed for all eternity. You're, you're now an adopted son or daughter. Verse 21 says, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself a people to make for himself a name by great and awesome deeds. So if there's anything I've learned over the years about dealing with people in the streets especially, they don't know the purpose of their life. <laughs> verse. It says that God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name, meaning to, to, to glorify himself so that people, to make for himself a name. What that means is, is people, uh, you know, as a general rule, the problem is, and I was explaining this to someone after church on Sunday, pe what people tend to do with God is they make God into their own image. A anything that they think would be a good I idea to have as their God, that's what they make God into. So, you know, if, I don't know, let's guess, let's do the hot topic of the day. If you think it's a bad idea, uh, a bad idea to, 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 to be opposed to same-sex marriage, well, of course, God wouldn't be opposed to that either. He loves everyone. He, he must love that too. That's the God. He, he's okay with that. And, and, and so that's why Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, to, he says that he's Father's calling people to himself to worship him in spirit and in truth, and in truth. And when people know who God is, not only in spirit, but in truth, the truth about God, they know that the name of God is holy, the name of God is just, they know that the name of God is, is merciful, they know that the name of God is, um, uh, is, is hesed, in the Hebrew, loving kindness, and so in this verse where it says that God is calling for himself a people, God calls himself a people to make for himself a name. Uh, he, he, what he's, what he's uh, meaning there, a name that is where he's glorified in all the earth, so all the earth would know that he's the only God, that he's a loving God, that he's a wonderful God, and he has redeemed you in this room, he's redeemed you to make for himself a name, meaning your life is not about you. <laughs> that is one of the most valuable things that, that you can ever learn as a Christian, that your life is not about you. Your life is about the Lord and what he's going to do through you to make for himself a name, a name that is glorious, a name that is wonderful, a name that is powerful. He's going to use your life to make for himself a name. The book of Titus says this, Jesus Christ uh, rather, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's Titus um, 2, verse 14. So your life is not about you. So um, I, I, uh, it's about what God wants to do through you 
to make for himself a glorious name. Uh, and, and so that's a good, this is a good purpose verse. First Chronicles 17, 21. Verse, 23, uh, verse 22, um, for you have made your people Israel your very own people. Sound like Titus? Yes, sounds just like Titus. The church has been grafted in um, to Israel, and so the same language is used. Have become their God. And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. Meaning, the word that you've told me that one of my offspring is going to be the kingdom forever, let it be God. You know, it's important when the Lord tells you something about your life, he gives you some promise. He will. He'll do this. It, it, it's important that you go, oh, no, no, Lord, not me, not me, not little old I knew you were a shepherd, and shepherd of the despised people of Israel, and I raised you from a shepherd, and now you're king over Israel, but I'm going to make for you a house, a dynasty, and it's going to be a dynasty that's going to last forever. David doesn't say, oh, no, no, come on, not me, please, not me. No, that's not what he says. Um, he says this, he says, verse 23, let it be established forever and do as you have Said It reminds me a lot of Mary. Remember when um, she was told by the angel that she would bear a son, and, and uh, the, the son, and, and it would be uh, the, um, her, her son would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and it was basically, listen, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the Messiah. What did she say? Oh, no, no, not me. No. She said, let it be as you said. Let it be unto me, as you ha have said. And, and so, um, it, 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 you know, when the Lord speaks to you, the thing oftentimes that gives us this false humility, no, 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 don't do this, because we think our life is too much about ourselves. That's the whole reason. But your life is not about you. And God wants to make for himself a name um, through your life. Verse 24, so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. So again, David speaking here to God. For you, O oh, oh my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. That's a dynasty. That's what it means. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. And so there you have it. That is the... Uh, the, the, the verses that, among many others, that Jews will even point to to this day, believing in a Messiah. Uh, the Jews that are not Christians still believe that a Messiah is coming, and, uh, and these are among those verses. So in chapters 18, 19, and 20, what do you see? D David is newly king, and now he is going to, uh, the kingdom is going to expand greatly, um, greatly uh, 
in his reign. And, and it's going to be, it's going to rapidly expand now. And that's what the next few chapters are about. Chapter 18, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hands of the Philistines. And so this is the area of modern-day Palestine here, the land of the Philistines. Uh, that's towards the, towards the west, and, and verse 2 is towards the east. Then he defeated Moab, that's modern-day Jordan, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Verse 3, and David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. Uh, and, and so uh, when God initially told Abraham that his descendants would become into the land, he told them that they would control from the river Euphrates down to the, the brook of Egypt. So this is getting really, really close here. I believe under Solomon. Took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstring all the chariots, rather he hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. That sounds pretty brutal, though we'll tell you, warfare, um, uh, the warfare 3,000 years ago, wow. So hamstrung all the horses, meaning they couldn't, he's basically killing them. He doesn't want them to be used by a, an army after he leaves. Verse 5, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons, garrisons are kind of like strongholds, just they are like little regiments of soldiers to oversee um, a land. So then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syria, Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So the hand of the Lord is on this guy. The favor of the Lord is on David. And David took the shields of gold, verse 7, that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Tiphath and from Chun, cities of Hadadezer. David brought a large amount of bronze with which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars and the articles of bronze. So right there, note that B-O-O-T-Y, important, um, and, and just put it in his own treasury he puts it in the treasure of the Lord. It's going to be used later on to build the temple. Verse 9, now when Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, King David, to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Tau. And Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. And so just enormous favor, just people really kind of lining up at this point to say, David, 
uh, I'm going to give tribute to you. And he's just becoming, he's making Israel just fabulously wealthy at this point. Uh, verse 12, moreover, Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He also put up garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And so there you have that again. Edom is to the southeast um, of Israel. So David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Japhsha was the scribe. And so in verse 16, you see in his cabinet, in his whatever presidential king cabinet here, he puts deliberately is choosing men of God to ad advise him. You know, um, oftentimes we pray for the president of the United States, for the governor, for the mayor, and we just pray, Lord, please, 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 Lord, would you please put in somehow in him to... Uh, to speak truth into him. So often now, uh, there's very, very spiritual input um, put into the, the, the government. That's why we're in a lot of the problems that we're in now. Verse 17, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief ministers at his table. Who were the Cherethites and the Pelethites? Um, Pelethites, they were Philistines. Uh, they were Philistines. David had lived in that country for a while. And one of the things uh, about, that I've been mentioning about David throughout, remember Jesus is the son of David. Remember Jesus, the ministry of Jesus um, was always go unto all the world. Uh, there is not as much of that in the Old Testament, this, this, this theme of going out to the nations. But David had these guys. Uh, he had these different guys, Canaanites, pagans, others, who saw the hand of God on his life, and they said, listen, I don't know, I don't know what it is about you, but you got it. You got something that I want. It's in the Cherethites, uh, they're bodyguards. They're, uh, they're like a, a little regimentalized, well, this is it. You actually see... Uh, you see this in the, in the book of Acts over and over again, right? Paul would go to these, temp, to these synagogues, and they're in the Jewish synagogues. They weren't Christian. And they had just been attracted to, to, to these Jewish synagogues because, man, they were living out in the Gentile world. It's a complete wild madhouse. That's why they called Gentiles dogs, because they lived like a dog. They did whatever they want all the time. And, and, and so, but, but, but so the word of God is just, it's always attractive. It's always drawing people in. And, and that's what David was like at all. He was a man after God's own heart. Chapter 19. It happened. Okay, this is, this is, uh, this could be like a made-for-TV 
not movie, this, this may be like 45-minute movie or one-hour movie. You ready? How, how's that for an introduction? Chapter 19. It happened that after this, Nahash, the king of the, of the people of Ammon, died. And who were the Ammonites? We discussed this a couple weeks ago. Descendants of? No, Freddie, you're not allowed to answer. And, and, and no one's allowed to answer who overheard Freddie. The Ammonites were descendants of who? Lot. Lot. Remember when Lot escaped from Sabites? They're traditionally, they were, um, they were enemies. But David, being the person he was, was actually a friend of this guy, Nahash. It says that it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. And again, you see this over and over about it. Approachable. And so this, this, this king, Nahash, traditionally a terrible enemy uh, of Israel concerning his fathers. And David's servants came to Hanan in the land of the people of Ammon, to comfort him. So he sends his secretary of state, some other main officials, to comfort this son whose father had just died because this father was a good friend of David's. Verse 3, and the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, they, took, they said to his son, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search and to overthrow and spy out the land? For, therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. They were sent away bare with bare butts. Now, that would be humiliating today, but I got to tell you, then it was like uber humiliating, <laughs> so humiliating that this happens now. Verse 5, then someone went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. In other words... It was so embarrassing to have your beard cut off. That was as bad as having your butt exposed. That he said, look, you, you guys, wait up. And he said, you don't have to turn to Jer come to Jerusalem like that. That was so shameful for, for something like this to happen. Now, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to, to David, so the people, when they heard about this, they were like, we're going to be in big trouble. <laughs> it says, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syria, from Maka, and from Zobah. They hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Maka and his people who came and encamped before Mediba. Also, the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. So, in, in verses 6 and 7, it, it, it really appears there that they realized, wait a second, we really should not have done this. 
I mean, this was a bad idea, and we are going to be in big trouble. And instead of just going to David and saying, listen, this is the worst possible thing we could have ever done. What can we do to make up for it? They're going to go on to battle, and tens of thousands of them are going to die. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you bring your gift to the altar, meaning uh, before you go to a prayer meeting, before you come to a Tuesday night service or a Sunday service, before you pray at noon prayer, 3 p.m. prayer, before you pray in the morning to God, and it comes to mind, you remember something that your brother has something against you. Let me just repeat that. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come, um, you're at a church service, you're at a Bible study, study or you're, you're, um, at a, you're at a prayer service, you're offering the gift of your life. That's what you're doing. And I just beg you that you be vid- vigilant with this. If you know that you've done something against a brother or sister, or I would say anybody, go reconcile with them. The Bible says if you don't, don't expect any answered prayer in your life. Don't expect to be blessed. And God will just, he's the most, he's patient. Ooh, boy, is God patient. Man, he'll wait for decades until you forgive that person. The descendant of this the descendant of this boy who's, who's, was a boy who, uh, uh, who was a, um, a son of incest. You're no better than an Ammonite. Like these guys who, uh, they realized they had done wrong. They should have, they, they should have just <laughs> gone to David and pled for mercy. I don't know about you, but I have to go to people and plead for mercy because I do some really stupid things. I really do. But it's hard. It's hard to do that. As a man, you got so much pride, we hate doing that. But man, I don't want to be a descendant of a man. I don't want to do I want to be what I'm a child of God. I I'm an adopted son. I need to do what Jesus tells me to do. And and so they don't do that. Verse 8 says, when David heard of it. So David hears that this gigantic, it doesn't, we don't even know if David was going to attack him for doing this. But when he heard that they were like mobilized a gigantic army against him, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of um, Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city, and the kings of who had come were Um, by themselves in the field when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai his brother and they set 
themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, this is Joab speaking, Joab's the general of the army, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be of good courage. Joab doing some, some pretty bad things, right? I mean, he, he can be a really carnal guy. But he, then, he, then all of a sudden, this real spiritual guy pops out, uh, like in this verse. He's basically saying, and you guys have heard it before, give your best and leave the rest of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Uh, this is a faith. For with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai's brother and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, and Shophak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told, Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 charioteers, 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians, David, and became his servants, so the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. So one thing that's really interesting about Israel, which is different I think it's different than, I mean, I, I've been r really into history like my whole life, and I don't know that there was any kingdom other than Israel that was not um, offensive-minded, meaning they did not, like you see with Babylon, for example, with Nebuchadnezzar, man, that guy gets power. Um, he wept because there were no more nations for him to, um, uh, to, to, to conquer. The Bible says the eyes of man are never satisfied. But the interesting thing about Israel, they were never like that. They didn't go try to expand their kingdom. They were told by God, this is what's yours, no more. And so, it, 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 and, and even then, they, they, they rarely did they proactively do anything. They, usually they waited to be attacked, and that's what happens here. Uh, David had no intention. He, 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 the Samanite king, Nahash, they were friends. He had no intention of going and taking over that, that, that area. But then when the people, when it, that Nahash dies and his son comes, uh, hires an army against them, he goes, okay, whatever, and he winds up taking over all kinds of territory. They were not, the, the, the kings of Israel were never offensive-minded. They, they minded their own business, for lack of uh, a better word. But let me tell Leviticus all the time. It says, when you are in a big-time backslide, you're going to become people who are living in the world or people who are just living in the world. Or, uh, but particularly, I've noticed that Christians who go into a backslidden state become just completely paranoid. The, it says in Leviticus 26, 36, um, it says, the sound, at the sound of a shaken leaf, just a withering leaf, will cause the backslider to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues them. That's what the wicked are like. They're paranoid. Wicked people are paranoid. If you do like a study of China, Mao Zedong, it's just incredible how paranoid that guy got. And just... Millions of people died as a result of it. Same thing with 
Joseph Stalin, uh, they would just get paranoid. And Herod, King Herod, killed his own, one or two of his own sons because he was paranoid they were going to kill him so they could become king. And the emperor at the time, Augustus, says it's safer to be a pig than a son of Herod. I mean, he, he, he was just a wicked man. Yes, that was the same one who killed all the kids in, in Bethlehem, same Herod. But here, they, you know, David is just sending his people to go and bless this. He sends his secretary of state and sends some folks to bless the head of state of another kingdom. And they're also paranoid that they humiliate the people and then whatever, 40,000, 50,000 people die as a result. But the, perhaps the greatest lesson to be learned here is, man, <laughs> you, you better choose your counselors really carefully. You know, from time to time, people come to me for counsel, and they say, well, this person told me to do this, and this person told me to do that, and that other person told me to do this, so now what do you want me to do? And I tell them, well, the first thing is you've got to just choose. It doesn't have to be me. you just got to choose someone to get your counsel. But you can't get it from, be getting it from so many people. And when you get counsel, make sure it's godly counsel. Who's your counselor? Who's counseling you? Who do you seek for counsel? I hope first you do it with the Lord. I really mean that, by the way. Before you, I'm willing to talk with you at any time. You can call me at two in the morning for counsel if you'd like. I'll take your call. But I have learned before I get the counsel of man to seek the counsel of the Lord. But sometimes we get into such a, a mess in our lives, we don't, <laughs> we don't know what to get counsel. But make sure it is godly counsel. Who are you getting your counsel from? I suggest looking at, among other places, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says this. It says about love, it defines love, and it says love thinks no evil. There is a type of person, they're, they're under construction, they're still working out that, you know, when, because of 1 Corinthians 13, it says love thinks no evil, but then it says love believes all things. So if there is a way, and this is not just gobbledygook, feel-good nonsense. If there's a way to interpret a certain person's action as good, you should go for it. And, 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 and you know, I, I, if, there's, if there is, you're looking at a situation and it's like, well, there's five different possible motives behind this. Four are bad and one is good. Assume it's good. That's what love is. Don't kill the messenger. That's what love is. A counselor could be babysat by a child molester, but, but the, the thinking is we're not supposed to be suspicious people. We're just not supposed to be. That's not love. That's not how God makes him for himself a name, a glorious name by walking around uh, uh, um, suspicious of everyone, but that's how these folks um, were. And, and, and so 
who do you get your counsel from? So important that the person is, is the man or woman is, is filled, with the Holy, filled with the Holy Spirit, has a testimony for being regularly in the Word of God, and is a faithful servant in the body of Christ. So where you get your where you get your testimony. So this, uh, but meanwhile, so because of this crazy thing that they did, this crazy paranoia, um, David now is left with his kingdom just expanded by, I don't know what it was, 20% or something like that um, at this time. So let's um, just go to the last chapter, chapter 20. Again, this whole thing is about the expand and ravage the country of the people of Ammon and came and recognized this from 2 Samuel chapter 11 where the same story is told except something is added to it and that is David's sin with wife, bathing, inquired who she was, Turns out it was one of his favorite military men, but the eyes of man are never satisfied. He had been gathering wives and concubines. That wasn't good enough for him. He took her, had sex with her. She became pregnant, and he winds up killing her husband. And then he took her as his wife. Now, the most amazing thing is the grace and mercy of God that eventually that wife David and, and that woman had a, had, a, had, had a son, Solomon, who winds up being the next king. I mean, that's grace and mercy for you right there. But David's life would never be the same. The prophet Nathan said, the sword will never leave your house. So one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. One of his sons kills one of his other sons. Another son, for a while, um, you know, starts a civil war. But in Chronicles, um, it doesn't get into that. It was, as at the very beginning, I had mentioned, this is different. It was written for a different purpose than First and Second Samuel were. These, this was written to the, the land of Israel and the Lord just wanted to encourage him. He says, I'm not going to air the dirty laundry again. You, you guys already know about that from First and Second Samuel. But at, almost as if to identify the story, it starts the same way. It happened, verse 1, when the talent of gold and there were precious stones on it, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. Now, a talent of gold... I, I, I'm not sure exactly where the commentators all land on this, but talent of gold and people helping him is probably more ceremonial in nature, sort of one of these things where, okay, David is now the king of this area, and then he took it off quick. But it says he brought out, in verse 3, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did all the cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And so he basically makes all the people slaves of the area, of these areas that were um, taken over. Verse 4, now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sebekai the Hashatite killed Sipai, who was one of the sons of the giant 
and they were subdued. Now they think one of the sons of the giant, they, th th there are scholars who think this is referring to Goliath, as well as the next um, verse, another son of Goliath, it is speculated. Again, there was Lama, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And verse 6, it says, yet again, there was a war at Gath, born to the giant. So it was, it was thought that this is another son of, of Goliath here. And I understand this still happens today. You can be born with six fingers or six toes. In this case, though, it was both hands and both feet. And so I think the detail here is just like, this was one intimidating dude. I mean, not only was he like uh, as, as tall as he was and huge as he was, he came out like this and, you know, has uh, 12 fingers. Uh, verse 7, so when he defied Israel, jo Jothan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David. And there's going to be problems with that because he's going to try to, he's going to take a census for the purpose of, well, I want to know how many people are under me as opposed to for some legitimate reason. So, you know, we're just not wired. We're not wired. We really, really, really are not wired for just constant, steady, ever-increasing power and influence and money. Um, but you do hear, um, see just the mobilization uh, of, of David and the armies of Israel after David took power. And it, this is over a, um, a number of years, a whole nation um, going from one enemy reigning over them and enslaving them to another enemy enslaving them to this point here where... It's, it's, it's a foreshadowing of the messianic kingdom that's going to be established someday when Jesus returns. It's, it's uh, in part that, so is the reign of Solomon. But 